to another episode of Future Nation. Are you telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? Where we speak with some of today's brightest innovators and explore the future of disruptive innovation. Let's go. Here's your host, Daniel Callow. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Future Nation. I am your host, Daniel Callow. Today, I will be speaking with Nick Mann. Nick is the CTO of RotorGeek, an employee rostering platform that uses automation to improve organizational efficiency. Nick first started programming at the age of seven when he received his very first computer. By the age of 16, Nick got his first job as a software programmer within the automotive industry. There, he learned the importance of agility and moving fast. In the following years, Nick progressed to various roles within both automotive and tourism. In 2009, Nick co-founded RotorGeek, where he and his co-founder Chris set their sights on improving workforce management by utilizing cutting-edge data-driven techniques. Today, some of the world's most respected companies are using the RotorGeek platform to efficiently manage their staff and improve employee retention. I introduce to you Nick Mann. Hello, Nick, and thank you very much for agreeing to be on Future Nation today. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Tell us a bit about your background. So, uh, yeah, I've always been in tech. Um, I started programming, I guess, with my first computer. I was about seven years old, so it's been, it's been a long time. So, yeah, always been interested in programming ever since I got my first computer, I guess, really, and uh, that's followed my way through. Uh, I actually got a job as a programmer after leaving school, straight away when I was 16, or my very first job as a programmer. Wow. Uh, way back in the day. Uh, actually, that was for car industry, actually, so looking after um, doing like car sales and that sort of thing, and it was good experience for me. We had like 60 customers and had a lot of pressure, but it was good at these tend to learn very quickly in those sort of circumstances. So yeah, so I sort of continued on with that really. Um, always loved programming. And once I left there, I just sort of progressed. I actually tried yeah. hardware for a little bit for a couple of years. I did some hardware and then went back to software again, sort of missed it and went back to software again all the way. So hardware is not as exciting not as software. Not as exciting, no, <laughs> exactly, not quite. Um, but it's actually, I think it's quite good to get that, I suppose, that, that uh, um, insight insight into tech, you know, to the back yeah. end as well and see how things run. But it was good. So it was an interesting time, but uh, back into uh, programming again. Yeah. So industry-wise, start off in that car industry for a little bit. Predominantly after chat, went to travel for quite a while. Oh, yeah. And progressing up the way, start off as database programmer and then sort of progressed up to the path really for that way. Yeah. And then I guess moved on to sort of more architecture roles. And then moved up from there, really. So, yeah. Yeah, awesome. How did you get into RotorGeek? So, yeah, um, I guess we started RotorGeek 10 years ago. It's crazy. It's it 10 years ago now. It's, it's mad. Um, I came to Australia in 2001. Uh, yeah. I'm originally from the UK. Um, my wife's from Melbourne, so uh, she was over in the UK. We moved here in 2001. I was contract programming quite a bit. Due to some family and issues, I guess, we decided to go back to the UK for a little bit. So I went back in 2008. Yep. And that's where I met Chris. I was actually contracting for a, another startup, uh, just as a contract programmer. Um, and Chris was part of, uh, Chris is the CEO, sorry, by the way, sorry, yeah. Chris McCulloch. He was working on another startup. Yeah, he's uh, actually was an ER doctor. Yeah. Um, and we, he actually was looking at startup, like a community, a bit like a Facebook for healthcare, I guess, at the time. Okay. And through various friends, I got uh, got working for them as a contract programmer, got to know Chris really well. Yeah. Chris's passion was always um, a doctor. He's always, he saw the, the problems in the NHS to do with scheduling and the fact that you know, they're working ridiculous hours. At the time, there was a thing called the European Working Time Directive was coming in, of which there was a lot of restrictions on hours for doctors. 
and there was a thing called an opt out. So, the, so you, as a doctor, you could opt out of this, which right. means so you can work as many hours as you like. Yeah. So. At the time, there was no real solution to this. And we got, you know, we got chatting one day and thought, actually, well, there's no software solution to this. You know, it's quite a complex thing. And, you know, we sort of did some little experiments and uh, decided actually it's probably quite a viable thing. So we started off RotoGeek. I sort of did half and half, I guess, half with the other company and then worked a little bit on RotoGeek. And we developed it mainly targeting a hospital. So that was the whole point is to target you and doctors. We built this opt out process in there. And as it turns out, writing the software was the easy part. <laughs> uh, we had to sell it to the NHS, which is always difficult. You know, after we wrote it, we saw various departments. We wrote to various departments. We actually um, had an MP uh, was chatting to us about it at wow. the time because opt-out was a big thing and yeah. we were the only software company doing it. And we pitched to a couple of hospitals, but we never really made much traction with that. It's very difficult to sell to NHS and it's it's even difficult to get a foot in the door, even though the software was proven, we you know proved it could it could be benefit to doctors. Yeah. So we continued for a little bit. Uh, about the time also I was missing Melbourne quite a bit in Australia a bit. So we decided to move back. And again, it was only a side project at the time really for us. We moved back to Australia and then um, obviously kept a contract with Chris and carried on contract programming here for, for the travel industry back in Melbourne again. And it's really only a while after we just got a support call through their email um, about someone's having issues with the website. And I contacted Chris said, I'm didn't realize anyone was using this thing anymore. You know, we just left it running. I didn't really think about the time. And it sort of got us to thinking, actually, look, there may be something in this. We actually looked into it and found there was a few people who signed up and using it. Right. So at that point, we thought, well, look, you know, do we write to these people and say, look, you know, I'm sorry, we're going to shut the thing down or do we try it once more? You know, and I think it's one of those pivotal moments you look back on at that time and think, actually, well, at the time we thought, look, we've got to try this once more. We've got to give it a go. So, um, yes, yeah, so we decided to pretty much scrap the technology we had because it moved on a lot from then. Yeah. Um, and then again, I was doing a part time. So in the evenings, the weekends, I was wrote the thing from scratch again. But this time, I guess the difference was we didn't just target it to healthcare. We said it was a more generic product. In fact, we were sort of had to retail our mind at that point. Um, Why retail? Because it was the biggest market. I think okay. you know, we we could see at the time, and you know, we've done a lot more research since then. Yeah. But I think at the time, we sort of realised that this is quite a big market to go into, and it's probably one of the obvious places to start with scheduling. Yeah. At the time, to be honest, we were thinking about cafes. You know, maybe for or five people we'll get you know we'll make a SaaS product get people to sign up you know these these mum and dad businesses and you know that's where we're going to market as well as you know we'll obviously try the nhs as well but so over a period of i guess a year i rewrote the software yeah. and chris was uh, so to the two of us and chris was doing the other side of it the marketing and testing it and you know refining the product over that year and again, it's one of these chance things where Chris, his neighbor, was we're chatting away and he was talking about technology accelerator programs in London. Yeah. And he said, look, you should try this out. Like, you should give it a go. And there's an accelerator program called Wayra, which is backed by Telefonica, who own big telecommunications firms in both UK and Europe. Right. And they're running it. So we thought, look, we'll give it a go. So we put a pitch in for that and we got in, which is fantastic for us. So yeah, it great. was one of, we, I think we were one of 13 out of about a thousand companies at the time wow. who were going for it. So, you know, it was really good. Um, yeah. And that was really our launching pattern. At that point, we sort of, you know, thought, well, you know, retail is definitely the way to go. They give us small, small C funding, but it's mainly the support network and the, you know, they give us a little office space. Yep. At that point, yeah, I guess that's where we started off and we then developed the product at that point. And with way of having uh, those sort of influence, I guess, and being part of Telefonica, it just happened that one of the big telecoms companies at the time was looking for a scheduling solution. It's, it's O2, which is very big in the UK, 
similar to Telstra is here, I guess. Yep. And they were looking, and obviously they were part of Telefonica and, and looking internally. So we pitched them. We actually got the contract within like two or three weeks of, of joining, which was fantastic for us. I mean, absolutely brilliant. And, you know, at the time it was two and a half thousand staff and, you know, 200 stores. And we were, you know, we were terrified, I guess, at the time. <laughs> like, you know, okay, look where we Jumped in now. too deep. Yeah, that's right. Because obviously we were a staff as a SaaS product. So, yeah. um, you know, we, so we kept the SaaS thing running for a bit. I guess, you know, those initial days, we, we were starting off to be a, a SaaS website, but we tend to find that we're sort of obsessing on the numbers. You know, we're looking at this dashboard and screen saying, oh, two people are signed up today. Or why do people sign up today? And we were saying yeah. so much time on looking at flow and, and oh, what, what, what they're doing wrong, what we're doing wrong, what they're not clicking on. Yeah. Um, you get sort of get assessed by that. Um, and that's the wrong way to, we found out it's the wrong way to go. Um, yeah. So we, then sort of looked at the, the the model that O2 was giving us and the fact that these are enterprise clients, you know, the fact that we can immediately have got two and a half thousand staff there, you know, ready to go. And obviously the gains are a lot bigger for enterprise clients. So we sort of thought, well, maybe we'll do a little more concentration on that side of things. And that's what we did. So we actually kept the SaaS part of running for a little bit, but then found that for money-wise, it was costing us more money to support, you know, individual people who are paying yeah. one or two pound a month than to put their effort into enterprise clients. Enterprise, where obviously yeah. the, where the, the value is a lot higher. Yeah. So that's what we decided to sort of go for more enterprise enterprise clients. And that was sort of way 2014. Yeah. And again, since then, really, we've just been sort of going from then onwards and building up our client base based on enterprise clients. Yeah, fantastic. And um, so at the moment, it's purely enterprise and you're not really doing the SaaS side no, of things? No, purely enterprise. So we, we look at clients, anyone over a thousand employees, we found it's a good good spot for us. Yeah. Uh, and that's worked well for us. So that's, that's our, our target market at the moment. Yeah. Mm. Tell us a bit about uh, maybe a couple of your clients. Yeah, sure. So we started off with O2. Then we've progressed up. So they're, they're, at the time they were they were our biggest client. Uh, we then got some slightly smaller ones just to test the market out. Um, yeah. One is being Lotus Cupcakes, which at the time was uh, they're doing really well. Actually, they're a great, great company. And the good thing about them was that we were still in the infancy phase, I suppose, in terms of development. So yeah. they were very hard on us, which is great because they came back and said, look, you know, this doesn't work or have you thought of doing this way or we need this for this. And they sort of helped us develop the product a little bit, I think. And yeah. that, that helps out along the way. So they're still one of their clients now, which is great, you know, how many years on. But then we sort of progressed up. So we've got, uh, again, these are UK companies, but we only really sell to at the moment to UK and Europe. Yeah. So we've got like um, Perfume Shop, Merlin Entertainment, who run a lot of theme parks in the UK. Oh, um, yeah. I think they actually own things like uh, the Melbourne Aquarium, that type of thing. A lot of the Man of Two Swords. Biggest client so far is William Hill, which is uh, about 14,000 employees. And we've got others in the pipeline coming up, which are a lot bigger than those guys. So they're sort of progressing up, I guess. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about the funding that you recently received. Yeah, so we did seed funding a couple of years ago, and we've just been through the uh, effectively Series A. We got um, funding through current investors, which is great, and it's always good. We have an investment. That, in fact, I think all of our investors actually reinvested on the on the Series A, which is really good endorsement for us as yeah, a company. Um, but then we got uh, a VC company coming as well, who sort of contributed the rest. So yeah, yeah, fantastic. Sets up well for the for the future, I think. I suppose that proves the concept and sort of shows that there's confidence. It is. And it's a huge thing. And we never really thought about VCs before. And when we looked at these guys, they were really good. And it's been, a, it was a really good, very, very hard um, journey, but really good. I mean, their due diligence was amazing. Yeah. You know, they, they go every, obviously, and quite rightly so, they go through every part of the company into tech and finance and everything. And they question everything you do. And to come out of that, I think with investment and a, you know, and a good partner, I think is a good, is a good endorsement us as well. And I think yeah. actually, well, you know, 
I, I was always been a programmer. I wasn't, I wasn't a CTO. You know, Chris was a doctor and not CEO. And I think that gives a little bit of hope about, well, okay, we can't be doing too badly because, you know, we built at this point and they're quite happy with what we've done. So it was always good. Yeah, it's definitely a growing industry. So as far as what Rotogeek does, it's scheduling. Yes. Uh, using machine learning. Yes. Explain a little bit about the process and what it does and I suppose what problems it solves. Sure. So I guess when we started off, it wasn't originally algorithm based. It was more, it's manual. Uh, you know, our first priority was actually get people off of pen and paper onto an, yeah. a digital schedule, which was O2's model that actually just used pen and paper. And when we looked into it, it's amazing how many companies still use pen, even now, wow. use, use pen and paper. Not even Excel. Not even Excel. <laughs> or, or, they'll, or they'll do something Excel, print it, stick it on yeah. the wall, and that's where it works. Yeah. So our initial business case for this system was to move people off of that because it, you know even the manual scheduling, you still got the ability to let everyone know about their shifts in one go, click and it, bang, it, you know, it'll SMS everybody with their shifts and yeah. can go in and, and request swaps and leave and so even that part of it was still very good. And if we saved, I think, O2 that said we saved them two and a half million pound in the first year in just with that part of it, which is like another good metric. Yeah, it's great for us, you know, to have that metric. So, you know, for a big part of our journey to start off with was concentrating on that manual process and improving that, the UI to make it very easy to use. Yeah. But then as we sort of, I guess, progressed up to the more enterprise clients, we realized, and, and sort of Chris always had this vision of building this AI model and having it you know, a lot easier for these big companies to schedule because scheduling is a big task, especially if you've got big companies. They've got departments, whole departments doing these sort of things. Yeah. So we invest a lot of time and money on producing the algorithms to take forecast data, footfall data, anything we can get basically from these companies to produce a forecast. And then based on you know how many people they need, and even now like skill levels, produces a, an optimal schedule. So yeah, That's the idea. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what we want. They want an optimal schedule with a minimum amount of fuss, minimum amount of effort, but also the ability to, to change that and adapt it if need be, yeah. which we've been working on. So you know, over the, so again, we start off manual and in the last maybe three years, we've put a lot of time and effort and money into, into our algorithms, getting those right. And it, it's a continuing thing. Like, you know, it's always, yeah. always going to be improving as we go and as we bring new clients on with new issues and new requirements. So what sort of information does the client input in regards to the employee? We obviously have a list of employees that go into it, but it's mainly that the data from them is mainly about demand really rather than individual employees. So it's more of a case of, you know, how many people they have a till at any one time, how many people are in this store on a, on a Tuesday, yeah. uh, you know, 2 p.m. You know, any data we can get from them, our data scientists can take that data and look at it and do a forecast about not necessarily, you know, uh, like you particularly in a, in a job, but you want a person doing, you know, yeah. you've got to cover a person or, yeah. uh, you know, it could even be the case now where it's not just a person, but a person who can open a store you know has yeah. those skills or certain skill sets like for instance you'll have someone who hates working saturdays exactly so yeah. that sort of data does that get inputted on the outset or does that learn over time it's actually a bit of both so the outset is more or less just plain demand about yeah. how many people they need at any one time but the um the other focus we have is on employees right so it's it when we're pitching this to companies, you're pitching to HR managers, to COOs and those sort of things who obviously can see that the benefits they're going to get from this, whether it be monetary or optimizing their staff, right? Yeah. But that's only part of the story. The other part of it is getting employees involved and, and making it easy and good and easy for them. Because if you don't engage the employees, it's not going to work. Yeah. Ultimately, they're the one who's going to use it. So we spend a lot of effort into making it nice for them to use as well. So the fact they can go in and as you say, they can go into their own account and say, actually, it doesn't work for me Monday afternoons because I've got this or, yeah. you know, like I'm happy to work all day Tuesdays. 
So as they're using the software, it's learning. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's learning their behavior. And that then goes into the algorithm. So yeah. next time around, it will say, right, well, it will use what we call fitness function to say, right, okay, well, this person doesn't want to work Tuesday afternoons, therefore we'll try not to put them on. Yeah. Uh, there's hard and soft rules, right? So a hard rule is I definitely can't work a Tuesday, so the alter schedule won't allow that. Yeah. But with, with soft ones, say, look, I prefer not to. So it will try not to, but at the end of the day, if it needs to, you know, it'll put them in. So we're trying to very much make it uh, friendly for the employees as well. And yeah. uh, they, they, they were actually just in the moment of just redoing our mobile apps as well. So they can do it through the mobile app, make it easier to have those preferences in there, I think. So that's fantastic. One of the big ones, I suppose, in rostering is fairness. Yes. There's always debate and dilemma. Yeah. How can technology solve that problem of fairness? How do you build a profile or how do you approach that aspect of rostering? Sure. Uh, I can, and you're never going to please 100% of the people 100% of the time, clearly. But, you know, by building the tools that allow staff to actually put their preferences in, yeah. um, you know, that's one half the story. Again, as I said, it's hard and soft. I mean, the majority of the time you can say, look, I prefer not to work on a certain day. Um, but, you know, I, I push I can. So I think that you know, that's one part of it is, is, is those employee preferences. Um, a big part of our algorithms is, is what we call fitness functions. We, we continuously build these modules in and they can be configured for each company. Yeah. And a fitness function could be like, you know, I want the cheapest possible uh, schedule based on how much I pay my employees. And that's from the management perspective. Yeah. But then you go down to saying, well, you know, I don't want someone working every weekend. Like, you know, you can't have an algorithm that puts the same person on every Saturday because they're yeah. going to get annoyed at that and not going to want to do that job. So you've got these functions to say, look, you know, if you work this Saturday, uh, I, I won't put you on next week. Or if you prefer not to work Tuesdays, I'll try not to put you on a Tuesday. Yeah. And you can rank these things in. So basically, end of the day, it will give a score for this particular uh, schedule based on both the economics of the schedule, the optimization of the, of the staff and and the fitness functions of the staff doing that. So, yeah. uh, you know, and it will come up with the best possible solution it can out of that. So, you know, so, so you're never going to please 100% of the time, but I like to think that our fitness functions actually does a the right balance. Give me an example of a mid-sized organization that might use a technology like this. How does it change their existing processes? And does that mean that where they usually have four or five people in a team dealing with the rostering, that they could reduce that to one or two now? Yeah, well, yes and no, I guess. I mean, we, from a, a traditional company, say the size of a few thousand employees, you're right. I mean, they, they've got two or three people who are doing rostering. And that's their whole job. Uh, now, rostering is not a fun job. It's not a <laughs> sexy job. It's something that needs to be done, right? So I guess there's two elements to this. One is our idea is not to get rid of stuff. And what we're saying, you know, hey, sack your entire scheduling department, use us instead. That's not what we're about and not what we wanted to be about. Yeah. It's upskilling those people. So rather than just drudging away, tapping out Excel spreadsheets, printing them 50 times and send them out of our email, yeah. If there's a better way of doing it using our software, that means they've got more. They're, these sort of people are the guys who know the business better than anybody else. So they're, yeah. they're doing all the schedule. They know the intricacies of the business. And I think the company would much rather upskill them and use them for a, a more business-related task than sitting there drudging away doing schedules. So yeah. our idea is not to remove people from those departments, but to get rid of the tedious task of actually doing the schedule and then concentrate on you know maybe optimizing that schedule or managing other areas of the business, which may be neglected or they can use their skills on. So yeah. that, that's the idea. Idea. The other side of it, obviously, with the, the the staffing level size, is that again we're not trying to say, look, you know, hey, you know, you've got ten people, we must, you know, you only need six. It's you know, get rid of four people. That's again not what we're about. It's using the existing staff more efficiently. Yeah. So you know, whether where that's, um, you know, you might find that. 
you know, you, you, you've got 10 people on at 9 a.m. We actually probably only need six people because the demand is not that high. So therefore, you can change your hours and maybe redistribute those people to two o'clock where you've got much more demand. Yeah. So it's normalizing that staffing level. So not getting rid of people, just using the people you have more optimally. Yeah. And, and that's not just individual locations. You might find you have two or three stores. Maybe there's, you know, maybe you had three stores around Melbourne CBD. And you've got, you know, six staff in each one. One of the stores hardly use their staff. The other one is manic at 2 p.m. So it gives you opportunity to actually take, okay, well, we'll take some staff from here and, and move them over here for that time. So it gives a flexibility for a company to redistribute their staff as well and to become more efficient, I guess. Yeah, that's fair enough. So where do you think AI would fit into this? At the moment, we're probably early days. Yeah. Eventually, AI is going to come into the picture and that's going to be a shift in gears mm-hmm. and it's going to change things again. Where do you sort of see it going with AI and what sort of impacts? So I think AI will obviously increase the efficiency of the algorithms. And that's what we're looking at. We don't currently use AI in its traditional sense. We've got our own AI engines, something we're looking into. But I think there's always going to be a human element to this, regardless of how good the AI is going to be. And and look, the AI can be very good in, in not just looking at demand, but also stuff preferencing as we do. But uh, you've got other things that AI could do. I mean, they could bring in weather. I mean, weather could be a big factor on on some retail stores. Like, you know, it's going to rain tomorrow. You're not going to need so many people in the store. So I see AI being very instrumental in bringing all those data sources into uh, and and improving the algorithms and giving you the most optimal solution or schedule based on those algorithms. But I still think there's always that human element because you might look at their schedule and say, actually that, you know, I don't think that that person would want to work there at that time. So I'm going to move them out. So I think Yes, it's going to definitely going to help in terms of increasing the 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 op- optimal schedule that we can produce based on not you know, on on various different data sources. But then there, I think we're still going to have the same result: is you press a button, you're going to get a schedule, but you're still going to need someone to manage yeah. that and have a look and say, look, that doesn't look right, or that's fine. But eventually, wouldn't you think that the AI would learn that too? It probably would do, yeah. Eventually, <laughs> and look, you know, that's great if that's the case. But I think we're a little way from that yet. But yeah. It, but yeah, I mean, I guess it, I mean, you I'm could talking see that. the future. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Let's say yeah. ten years, fifteen. Yeah, even. Yeah, of course. And as it learns, and as you get, and even for, for us as a company, you know, we're, we're starting to get years worth of data now yeah. and we can use that data for our own AI and, and feed that in. So we get new clients on board. Yeah. So don't just use their data. We can say, well, historically, look, we know that your area, um, you know, they've got this footfall of these people in this demographic. Yeah. So therefore we can build it. So yes, I could, I could see maybe in the future that, you know, it would, yeah. it would produce such an optimal schedule that you wouldn't necessarily need human intervention. You know, we were looking at uh, the car rental companies and we're, at the time we were thinking what we were actually looking and maybe getting flight schedules in. So, you know, if you know that someone's coming in a certain flight and that flight's late, yep. then, you know, you can predict that and know that, you know, if the ah. flight's late, you know, four times out of 20, then you can, again, build all these things into the prediction model yes. and, and and allocate your staff uh, um, using that data. So yeah. I think, you know, that's where it's going to get very interesting. I think that's what we're seeing in a lot of these companies that use AI. It's the blended data where the power is, is like saying, pulling in those feeds from airlines. I mean, that's phenomenal. And- yeah. You know, if one of your staff is on that flight and it's an hour late, it just factors that in, puts someone in that, yeah. that can fill in for that hour or extend someone else. Exactly. Or in the model of a car rental company, they know that the customer's coming in on certain flights and yep. you know, it can just, it, so it's, you know, it, it becomes very interesting at that point. And I think yeah. you know, integration is a really important part of what we do. We're putting a lot of emphasis on that this year. It's integration with other systems because again, this becomes very interesting. You know, we're getting data from other systems and, yep. you know, it getting even live feeds and POS systems and, you know, yeah. for, for how many people are, are, are you till or how much, how many transactions you have. So all this information is, is really useful in terms of algorithms and AI, I think, going forward. 
What are the challenges in aggregating data like that? I mean, bringing in so many different feeds, how do you manage that? So cloud computing has helped an awful lot. Yeah. We moved to Microsoft Azure about three years ago now. Yeah. Um, we were on traditional metal before okay. um, and it's been really good for us. And especially a startup company, you can scale very quickly. But yeah. we tend to find with, um, to answer your question specifically about algorithms, we actually started, uh, we, we .NET and Microsoft for most things. We, we started using C Sharp as our language of choice and we start using that for algorithms, but we quickly find that you reach a point where it can't really cope or you want too many transactions. So we're now using C++. Yep. Um, and even then you start reaching limits. So you start, start looking at the future. So we've designed our algorithms in C++, but with such a way we can start using um, GPU engines for parallel tasks. So I suppose that so the, the, the challenge is, is, is trying to find the right technology to actually process data in time because what you don't want to do or what what customers expect is you press the button bang you know a few seconds later your schedule appears yep. then when you're talking about bringing data from all these different sources and and applying all these fitness functions and algorithms it could be quite a long process so the challenge is one part of it obviously is to code this and, and make sure that the, the data coming in is is sanitized correct and we can produce the algorithm but also the speed and the delivery of that yep. data into the client which is really and, and again that balance is, is quite tricky um, and something we're sort of constantly looking into yeah so that's probably where the gap is at the moment you're saying yeah i think so i think we're you know as as complexity of the data sources and and the algorithms increase then we obviously have to look at other ways and and speed things up but cloud computing has helped an awful lot and people like azure and aws are doing a lot of work now on giving you those resources yeah to help with those sort of things so you know we're with i'm sure that will be to keep up in the future just trying to keep an eye on that technology you know yeah you deal with rostering yes What's your favorite day of the week? <laughs> that is a good question. <laughs> Fridays, I like Fridays. Ah, Friday, uh, I think man. everyone likes Fridays. Um, as long as you're not working Saturdays? Or? That, well, exactly. In a startup, yes, you generally work every day. But, um, I think, yeah, I think it generally because I, I just like yeah, Friday's my favorite day, I suppose, really. And we're trying to do things of, you know, talk about culture later on, but, you know, um, I think Friday is a good day where I'm trying to bring things into the team like R and D Friday afternoons where, yeah, nice. you know, where you can just do, you know, obviously not anything, but yeah. as long as it vaguely related to what, what your job is, yeah. um, is to have a look at the, you know, test out your technologies, have a look at things like explore. Yeah. Cause a, a lot of good things come from that. I'm a big advocate of these R and D. It's not, it's not wasted time at all. Yeah. Because a lot of good things come out of these, these R and D afternoons. So, uh, you know, so that's what I'm hoping to do on Fridays in the future. <laughs> that's what become my favorite day. You talk about your team and culture. Mm. Tell us a bit more about Rotor Geeks team culture and how do you remain so innovative, Rotor Geeks delving in an area that is very disruptive and very much at the forefront. Obviously, Fridays, people can go and explore and experiment and that's fantastic. And what else? So culture is a big thing for us, or has, always has been. We've always wanted to make it a place where I'd want to work, you know what I mean? So yeah. it is, it's, and it's, it is tricky as we scale. And I suppose there's a few elements to this. One is that we're always inclusive. There's no hierarchy effect. In, in, we try not to have hierarchy in the company. Uh, there's no secrets to the company. Like, for instance, we had a meeting last night where Chris, CEO, went through our budget, including how much we've got in the bank and, you know, and what we're coming up and sales. So, you know, so everybody's involved. That's hugely yeah. important with startup because when someone joins a startup, there, it's, it's, it's always a bit of a gamble for staff. I mean, you don't know what's going to happen. So, you know, you've got to be inclusive and, and share this information with them, share the successes, but obviously, you know, share, share the budgets and those sort of things as well. 
Yeah. You know, we try and make it a fun place to work. We have, you know, both in both offices in London and Melbourne, we do, you know, team snacks. We have a, every Friday we do Friday lunch for, with all of us and we get to chat and do a, do the, do the, the quiz and stuff like that. So, you know, try to keep it inclusive that way. Being a, a startup, you can be a bit more flexible too in terms yeah. of, you know, some people come in early, some people come in late, you know, and, and that flexibility is really good because a startup is not a nine to five job, you know, especially one that's here and based in the UK. So, you know, you've got to be flexible in that approach to staff. And I think that's really quite, you know, they quite like that. Yeah. But uh, competitive with salary, obviously with a startup, you've still got to be competitive with salary. Yeah. And that's a challenge, obviously. It's a huge challenge, especially in Melbourne, when you've got a lot of big companies, a lot of big banks, insurance companies are always looking for staff and you've got to compete with that. You know, you, you, you can't just say, hey, take a lower salary because we're a startup because yeah. that doesn't work. You know, so you've got to match their salaries. You've got to have incentives. And that brings me another point, I suppose, is, is recruitment is a big part of it, of the culture part of it too. Because when I personally look at recruiting staff, regardless of whether they're technical or not, I'll take technical example because that's the one we do the most. The technical ability obviously is huge. We're looking for really talented people, but a big part of it is that culture fit yeah we're a small team. There's eight of us here. There's about 30 in the UK. Still relatively small. So you've got to have that element. You've got to have that person who really wants to work for a startup, would fit in the team well and invested in that future of the company, invested in that culture. And that's huge. I think if you don't have that, then those people can't really thrive. And um, and, and it's not for everybody. You know, Some people are happy in corporations where it's quite safe. We're looking for the other people who are a bit more- um, Risk-taking. Well, I suppose to some extent we're risk-taking. That's the inherent nature of being in a startup is it's a bit more of a risk, but you want those people because- innovation is risk. You've got to experiment. Exactly. You've got to fail 10 times before you get the 11th exactly, winner. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, the people we employ are, are sort of people who go home at night and still code, you know, yeah. or, or look at other, not necessarily for us, but they, you know, they're looking yeah. at things, looking, oh, come in, look, I saw this bit of technology yesterday. We might, might be able to use that. Yeah. And that passion is what we really need to start up. And that's what pushes us. Now, I think that's why we've done as well as we have, because the people we've got are fantastic. We've got a fantastic group in London and in Melbourne, yeah. very passionate about what they do and have that investment in the company. I think that that's a big thing for startups, definitely. The other thing I want to ask you is with any sort of technology company, you've done a lot of experimentation. Mm. And with experimentation, obviously, there's that, you know, the term that people use is failure. And large organizations avoid failure for obvious reasons. How do you manage it within your team? So obviously people work towards something and it doesn't work. Mm. People get down on themselves for that. How do you manage that internally to get people feeling better about themselves and keep moving forward? Yeah, we've got a no-blame culture in Road Geek. We've always had that from day one. It's, yeah. it's really important. And it's just nurturing that, I suppose, really. We all fail. I fail so many, you know, loads of times. I mean, it's, it's just a part of, of growing. It's part of the growing experience. And it's it's mentoring those people to say, look, you know, that, okay, that didn't work. Um, let's try it. And we, what we generally do, um, we do a retro, a re- retrospective yeah. on every on every sprint we do. We do a retrospective. And then we, we discuss what went well, what didn't go well you know, what we can do to improve that. And it's, yeah. it's not a blame thing at all. It's just looking at what we did before and say, look, okay, my don't, don't quite work. So let's try this. It's not a case of, well, you know, why do you do like that? You know, that that's not the way to do it. It's a case of, well, look, that didn't work. Let's try, why didn't that work? Let's think about what we can do to make it better in the future. Yeah. So it's just nurturing that evolution, I guess, and, and creativity to get that someone to move on to something else rather than just being over the head with something and saying, look, yeah. why didn't that work? So it's good. it doesn't get the best out of your employees. It sounds like it's baked into the culture. It is. Yeah. We've done that from day one. Like, yeah. it's, a, it's a big part of it. We understand that people are going to fail. We've done it ourselves yeah. and it's just part of life. You can't dwell on that. You just have to move forward, I guess. There's obviously a few different competitors out there that are doing scheduling. How does Rotogeek differentiate itself? What sort of innovation do you have that I suppose others don't? So our biggest competitors are 
Excel actually is one of them, um, <laughs> being a still quite a few companies who use Excel out there. Uh, and we've got other clients who are big multinational corporations, like billion dollar corporations in the US. Now we've taken the last few contracts off for these guys. And I think we found that the reason why is that we can move quite quickly and be more agile. I think that's where big companies will need to change slightly. There's always that because they've been around for so long, it's very traditional, you know, they've got the product, they go and sell it. And, you know, that's really what they do. I think we found the companies want to be a bit more flexible now, a bit more agile. I think that's where we've managed to grow little bit and get some of these bigger clients is the fact that we can iterate very quickly and yeah. we work with the client we don't just go here's a bit of software install it and off you go yeah. and we work with them and say like okay well how do you do currently how do you scheduling what you know what can we do to help have you thought of doing this way or and then talk to them and go through it and that's a, that discovery process is really important and then once we do that then we do trials and, and talk them through it and guide them through that process and i think that's where big corporations will have to change i think they're going to need to be more agile and yeah. and, and and not be afraid to to try things out like we talked before about having that risk factor, I suppose. Yeah. And, and one of the ways they can do that is having, you know, having innovation hubs and trying these things out. And like we said before, they may fail, but you might find a few things that do work. I think it's really important to then take those and actually use them, not just put in a cupboard and forgot about them. Yeah. So I think, you know, that's where at the moment I think we're doing well is that we can be agile, move quickly. I think that's where big corporations will need to change. I think they'll need to, to change their processes and sort of to match that and have that agile methodology and, and move quickly, I think. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's something that just comes with the size of organization. Bigger companies it find does. it harder to move. It is. And people, an example like Kodak, for instance, didn't move with the times when digital cameras come out and they're, yeah. they're obviously there. But it's gone now. Another example is Uber. You know, Uber is very much disrupting the, the taxi market. So the taxi market has to change and evolve and, and move on. So yeah. otherwise they get left behind. So I think these smaller companies are coming in and disrupting the industry and taking over where the, the big clients can do that. There's got to move a bit quicker, I guess, and, yeah. and foresee this stuff and move forward. So yeah. Yeah, definitely. The workforce is changing. Yes. Co-working spaces. There's so many variables now to the way people work, to the way organizations staff. How does Rotor Geek fit into that? And well, I suppose, where do you sort of see the next challenges in relation to how much this workforce is changing and the flexibility that people demand? Mm. It's inevitable that technology, I suppose, has to come in and manage that. It does. And we've seen a definitely a trend more towards zero-hour contracts. I think that's becoming, it's going to become more and more of a thing in the yeah. industry. And we try to build that into the product as well. I think some of it's staff retention and having that work-life balance or a decent working roster for staff yeah. um, definitely uh, encourages people to stay. Again, that's another big part of what we do is these schedules we produce in the part of the fitness functions is to make it a nicer place to work. So you have this staff retention and you've got to keep this uh, churn of staff around. So yeah, I think, you know, technology will help in terms of giving people the working patterns they need. Because um, yeah. you're right, the, the working style is changing. It's no longer nine to five and that's it you tend to find that that's changing quite a bit so having a roster or a schedule that matches that is really important but also i think you know it's sporting companies who want to start using zero hour contracts and making it fair for employees and for employers yeah. i think it's a big part of it as well have you got any examples of projects that you've done or clients where you've had a really big win and you feel that your software has really made an impact and it's almost like the aha moment of this is the future? Yeah, well, well I guess the first one was the O2, the very first contract. Again, because at the time we had no idea. We, in my mind, everybody was using state-of-the-art scheduling software and it was all done through the you know yeah. AI and whatever. And, and in reality, this just wasn't the case. You know, Even now we're finding 
big supermarket chains who are just using Excel. So I think for me that, you know, having implementing it in our very first client and seeing people using it for the first time and getting that feedback that, look, you know, it saved us two and a half million pound in the first year. That was our aha moment. That's yeah. the case of like, oh, wow, okay, this is definitely an issue that we need to look at. And being involved in that was really good. And seeing what you do and your fruits of your labor effectively, you know, being used and being used well, it was really good. And we've sort of continued that trend as we go. We've had clients who don't really have computers in their stores or haven't got the technology to cope. And we've sort of worked with them to increase and, and to automate them. Yeah. The fact that every store now has tablets they use for rostering and scheduling. So, you know, those sort of things are really quite nice to be that part of that journey for that customer. Yep. And where are you headed as far as clients go and where do you see Rotogeek in the next five or 10 years? What scope size or what industry? Yeah. So we're continuously looking at the verticals. So at the moment we're still looking at retail, but we're looking at other areas. Yeah. So in terms of market wise, we are currently in the UK with a little bit of Europe, just organically through clients we have in the UK. You know, obviously the next part is to look at Europe um, and then maybe at further afield, like the US is a big market, Asia is a huge market. So we're trying to move into the, some of those markets as well as we go. But vertical wise, we're always looking at opportunities. And I think that's one of the things that companies do need to do is continuously look at your verticals and, and, and look at alternative industries to service. And that's one of our things we're doing at the moment is looking at other areas. So yeah. I can't tell exactly which vertical we're going to be in. We're still looking at them, but you know, it could be <laughs> hospitality. It could be travel, transportation. So we're always looking at these sort of algorithms and schedules can be adapted to most other industries, I guess, which is quite good. Where do you think the biggest need is at the moment as far as the other verticals go? Where do you reckon... I reckon transportation. I think, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a huge thing. Coming from a travel background myself, I think, yeah. you know, not just even employee scheduling. I mean, those algorithms that we have could also be used for, you know, things like trains or, you know, if a, if a train breaks down, you know, we, we can change the, adjust the network to cope with it. So yeah. it's, it's those sort of things that get really exciting. You know, when you look yeah. at scheduling can be a very dry subject, but when you sort of think of things like, well, airline scheduling or train scheduling. Where they're so dynamic. Exactly. And brings in all these factors we talk about of, of other data sets and weather and, you know, that's what becomes really exciting. Yeah. You know, I think what we're aiming for is to be that dynamic company, you know, to be that company who is synonymous with algorithms and obviously predominantly employees, but other markets as well. We could use it for other things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's unknown really, but it's quite an exciting future. You know, I think there's, it's a lot coming up for us. And you're open to experimenting with pretty much anything. Absolutely. Yeah. That's one of the benefits of being a startup. You know? <laughs> it is. <laughs> Not as much red tape. It is. So uh, yeah, if anyone wants to get in touch with Nick, by all means, flick him an email and um, have a chat about an exciting project. Absolutely. Yeah. We're more than happy to help. Nick, you're quite innovative yourself. You've co-built a great company that is at the forefront. Tell us, how do you keep innovative yourself? What's your secret sauce? That's a good question. It's been a big learning curve for me, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I started as a programmer, then we're more to architecture. I suppose the difficult part for me and probably a lot of other CTOs is giving up that technical part of it. I yeah. mean, I still try and keep a hand in, but just the days they run in the department, you generally can't do that. So it's quite tricky. But I still like to keep that technological knowledge going. So I do listen to a lot of podcasts, a lot of technical yeah. podcasts, and try and keep as much up as I can with the technology that's going through. Yeah, I've actually found over the last few years is that networking is huge and you know speaking to other CTOs and having that um, you know we use LinkedIn a fair bit but you know ha- having advice from other people and is huge because a lot of times it can be quite isolating where you know you've got that uh, imposter syndrome where you think like oh, I can't be doing this right but then you sort of think actually you talk to other people and they've had exactly the same problems experiences and so uh, for me that's been really helpful I think is network other people talk to other people listen to podcasts listen to like TED Talks are really good as well yeah, I've listened awesome. to quite, quite a few of those yep. and again it's that, it's that moment where you think oh that's me you know that 
that that's exactly what I'm going through. Yeah. And you, you think it's not just, you know, you're on the right path. So yeah. uh, I think, you know, from that respect, it's really good. But the funny thing is, have you heard of the series Silicon Valley? Yeah, love it. Because at the time when we were just starting up, we were looking at, yeah. it's funny how... how It's spot on. Exactly. It's yeah. an exaggerated version <laughs> it's of... It's exaggerated. But it's quite funny. Yeah, um, it's so very well written. It is very well written. I think, you know, so so looking at those sort of things, it just, just you know, it makes makes you smile and thought, yeah. well, actually it's not just, we're, we're not the only one having these pain points. It's, it's, it's a well-known thing. Yeah. So, yeah. You've kept yeah. up with Silicon Valley up to I now? I have, I have. Yeah, it's one of my, one of my guilty yeah. pleasures. What do you think about Ehrlich? Not, uh, not so good with that Ehrlich, is it really? Uh, yeah, we haven't got an Ehrlich <laughs> character in the, in the company, but uh, <laughs> so be more when he left. I was so upset when he left. I can't believe I they got rid of him. Me too. I think we need Ehrlich <laughs> in our company somewhere, maybe, I don't know. Um, but yeah, so those sort of things, I think really just, it just start trying to keep himself motivated, uh, you know, with in terms of, of, of it, because a lot of it is process work when you're with a CTO level. I want to keep that passion for technology and a passion for what can yeah. be in the future and keep an overview. And I think, you know, not just with the development side of things, but with cloud computing, with AI, with the algorithm. So yep. just trying to keep up to date with those things. Is, so surrounding is yourself always with the latest exactly. in, in what's going on and listening to other people and yeah. making yourself feel like that there's others out there that are in the same shoes as you. Exactly. And learning from the team. I mean, we've got a great team here and yeah. I'm constantly listening out to their conversations and hearing what they're, you know, what they're doing and uh, being a bit jealous that I can't do it, but uh, <laughs> You know, but it's really good. They're, they're great. You know, technology wise, they're really good. And they're sort of learning from them too is a big thing. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Keep it up to date. Yeah, mm. no, great. And is there anything that uh, particularly inspires you specifically? Um, I've still got a passion for technology. I think that's yeah. the thing that, that drives me the most. I think I still, I still can see where we want to go and see the potential because yeah. obviously a lot of day-to-day stuff can be kind of mundane but when you've got that thing of oh I'd really like to do this I think that that's what drives me that is my passion for I've always had a passion for technology and yeah. and, and, and and coding and my wife says I spend far too much on gadgets but anyway that's <laughs> another subject uh, but you know I think that it's that that drives me I think and that's what keeps me going and sort of see, see, where, the, see where we can take the company and see how far we've come which yeah. is much more we we thought actually at this at the page we always thought we we're just going to be scheduling coffee shops yeah and see where we come up to now i think in that that's what drives me. think well actually look how we are now with this technology we could be this i think yeah. that's what keeps me going during day to day yeah fantastic well that brings us to the end of our episode today i'd like to thank you nick for taking the time and sharing your experience with us no thank you it's been great really good We are always looking for innovative and interesting people to be on our show. If you or someone you know would like to share their experience and be a featured guest on Future Nation, head on over to futurenation.co and click on apply to be a guest. If you like this episode, please subscribe to receive future episodes as they are released. Once again, thank you for listening to Future Nation. Thank you for listening to Future Nation. Hey, no problem, buddy. Head on over to futurenation.co. What for? For show notes and more. Oh, and don't forget to share and subscribe.